Welcome to Curve Beam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging. Welcome to Curve Beam Connect podcast, where we give doctors, patients, and anyone interested in healthcare and technology a look into how our solutions are changing medicine. I'm your host, Jenna Roller, Clinical Applications Specialist here at Curvebeam. And in this episode, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Christopher O'Grady, a nationally recognized shoulder specialist who also pioneered robotic knee surgery. Dr. O'Grady is affiliated with the prestigious Andrews Institute in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Welcome, Dr. O'Grady. It's a pleasure to have you with us on our podcast. Thank you, Jenna. Great to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you study and train, and how did you end up landing at Andrews? I started in the north and slowly moved my way south. I'm actually originally from Boston, uh, went to school in D.C. at Georgetown, went, stayed there, went to medical school, went back to New York City and did my residency at Long Island Jewish. I actually had the Navy pay for medical school, and then as part of that payback, I was sent to Pensacola after residency to be a staff ortho surgeon down here in Pensacola. So after about four years of that, uh, the Andrews Institute happened to open up really quite literally in my town at the end of my street where I was already living. So I had the good fortune to be in the right place at the right time and uh, actually have been here since the doors opened. So it's been quite a ride. Yeah, absolutely. That's a incredibly fortunate situation, but I'm glad it worked out that way. Um, for all of our listeners, what is the scope of your current practice? What are your kind of favorite areas of interest and are, do you have any certain conditions that you focus on? So my practice at this point has, has really started to focus primarily on knee and shoulder. Really arthritis being the most common condition that I think all orthopedic surgeons see. I do quite a bit of arthritis in both the knee and shoulder, but also other conditions, including ligament injuries, ACLs, and the meniscal injuries, and then in the shoulder, labral injuries, and rotator cuff surgery. Very interesting. Thanks. I think it always gives our listeners, uh, you know, added perspective to know know what your day-to-day looks like a, a little bit more. I know that you were one of the first in your region to adopt robotic knee technology. What motivated you to take that leap in in your area? Was it regional? Was it uh, special interest? What what motivated you to to uh, get involved in that early? So for me, it was it was really personal interest. It's been an evolving technology for quite some time in orthopedics, and I, I was hesitant at first. I'll quote Dr. Andrews as one of the things he often says to his fellows here is that you should never be the first or the last to get on board with a new technology. And I'm certainly not the first. I know you mentioned that I was a pioneer in robotic surgery. I think that might be generous, really. I'm just well <laughs> one of the ones who in this region got really interested in it. I had kind of dabbled in, in looking at it and learning about it over the years. And over about the last decade, the technology and the innovation in robotic surgery has really accelerated to the point that I can see where it's going, and I really decided mm-hmm. I wanted to be a part of it. And so that was really the decision for me. Admittedly, market-driven robotic surgery is, is probably the more common reason that people get into it because, well, it sounds cool, and who doesn't like robots? But 
really for me, I just wanted to be part of, of how this moves forward. No, certainly. And uh, I, I appreciate your candid response there. To to those that probably share some of the more personal interests mixed with those that from a, a marketing tool or standpoint, where have you found the value for you in your practice? Is it still personal interest? How has that translated into patient care for you? So I'd, I'd say it's still in the personal interest phase. And so, I, you know, I think for the surgeons that are listening and really for the patients, it's important to know that robotic surgery is not yet at the point where it's better than surgeons. And I think we're a long ways from that. Mm-hmm. What the really the goal is, is to put the tool into the hands of the surgeon that can allow them to do a better job. And, you know, a high volume, very experienced knee surgeon is probably at this point always going to do really an excellent job. Absolutely. And the idea with the robotic surgery is to take that surgeon's experience and then put it into the hands of somebody who's maybe right out of training. And that's where the robot comes in because it can allow that surgeon to use existing technology to avoid the kind of outlier problems that you might otherwise have as you go through your career and gain that experience. I think you make a really great point there, and and I know you you teach as well. Do you introduce that concept to your fellows and as they rotate through and kind of what's your advice to them, to the younger surgeons looking at technologies, you know, adopting technology in their practice? Well, I, I guess it's kind of the way I started, which is it, it begins with a cautionary, be careful of, of mm-hmm. jumping on board with something until we know that it's number one, safe, and number two, that it's you know potentially beneficial, and really encourage them to be a part of the process. As I, again, mentioned, robotic surgery is huge in every specialty, and there's barely a town in this country that you can't just look up at a random billboard, and you're going to see that some hospital's telling you that they're the best in town because they have a robot. Exactly. It's it's a little hard to, you know, fight that. And so I think most surgeons, whether they want to learn about it or they come kicking and screaming into it, 10 years from now, all specialties are going to be using some sort of robotic surgery or AI, I think, in the operating room. And so I'm encouraging our fellows here to, to be part of the innovation and to try to be part of, of driving where we go with this technology so that maybe one day really robotic surgery does become the gold standard. That's fascinating. It, and as you mentioned, um, for us, uh, as part of Curvebeam, we've been offering weight-bearing CT solutions to uh, the orthopedic community for, for quite a few years now. But in the fall, there's uh, we have a new device that's coming out that does the full lower extremity. And there's a lot of CT-based surgical planning out there right now. Where do you see the advantages of having a low-dose weight-bearing option available to patients? I, I think there's going to be tremendous advantages. In fact, my first experience with Curbium was as a patient. And so I, I had a weight-bearing CT done of my ankle when I had some issues and very quickly diagnosed a loose body, and, and it was just really cool to see the difference between the imaging that was 2D and non-weight-bearing and then the weight-bearing 3D CT. In the world I live in, between the knee and the shoulder, when you talk about trying to do the best joint replacement possible, 
the precision with which those implants go in depend a lot on the orientation of how they land to within a certain number of degrees or millimeters. So the standard now is that most people are getting some sort of advanced imaging, whether it be a CAT scan or MRI, so that they can do a preoperative plan. Mm -hmm. The benefit of your machine that will be able to image from the hip down to the foot is that when you're talking about a knee replacement, the alignment of the limb is critical. And so the preoperative alignment and the postoperative alignment are, are really important in terms of planning the end result. And, you know, that's one thing that we still think in two dimensions in orthopedics of talking about varus valgus or flexion extension angles. What a 3D CT is going to do that is weight bearing is really allow us to see not just the 3D surface of what the femur and the tibia look like, but we can then really see even potentially in the future dynamically how things move, not just in two dimensions, but in three. You know, that's, I guess I'm kind of going into the path of what's exciting about that technology for surgeons. Quite frankly, as the patient, what was great about it was that it was an in-office procedure. And we're, you know, financially, we're looking to minimize the, the financial burden on medical care in this country and really for the patient to maximize the efficiency with which we take care of them the ability to have such an advanced image done in the office is, I think, really going to help things move along. Well, that's great to hear from from your side of things, as you said, from the, the surgeon side. I, I know that you were pretty um, experienced in terms of right and blueprint applications for the shoulder. Obviously, the device that we have coming out is for lower extremity alignment, but can you speak a little bit to you know, being interested in technology, what the Blueprint uh, platform has been for you and, and your patients and, and where you've seen the value in that? Sure. So I, I do a, a lot of shoulder replacements mm -hmm. and I, the, the, I was fortunate enough to be trained by a high volume shoulder replacement surgeon. And so I took what he taught me through the first several years of my practice. And then in learning from other people going to courses really learned about the importance of preoperative understanding of the three-dimensional glenoid or socket of the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Where things have advanced to now is that for every single shoulder replacement that I do, the patient gets a CAT scan, the 3D images are then put into this proprietary software that really quite literally allow me to do the surgery long before the patient ever gets to the operating room. And so in a matter of minutes, I can really move around not just the patient's anatomy, but the components that will be the exact correct size, fit them into the glenoid, rotate them, you know, do all kinds of other technical things that I'm looking to really end up with a very precise endpoint of, of where the glenoid is going to go. And I can also, at that point, order a patient-specific guide, which will assist me in the operating room to try to execute that plan. And so... For me, for the last three or four years, virtually every patient is going to get the CT done so that I know when I get to the operating room that there are no surprises. I have a very good idea of what needs to be done, what the components will ultimately be. And that lends to other efficiencies as well. You know, we talk about supply chain challenges and tons of inventory and, and the things that are needed to uh, keep a high volume 
joint surgeon going, when you know going to the operating room what the size of the components are going to be, all of a sudden it's a lot less work for the reps, it's a lot less work for the OR staff, the scrub techs, fewer trays to open, et cetera. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of different things that, that I never really thought about that have made my practice more efficient by, by getting uh, the 3D planning done ahead of time. Certainly. Along those lines, do you think it's done anything for your OR time? Do you feel like as the surgeon, there's less, uh, you know, less trialing, less, has, have your case times reflected any of that as well? Uh, it, it probably does cut down a little bit, uh, especially in the cases with severe deformity, because there's less figuring things out on the fly. Mm -hmm. um, it really tells me sometimes when the patient's deformity is outside the range of even the best augmented implants. And that tells me that, okay, I've got to be prepared to do something really special, bone grafts or a custom implant or something. And, you know, that, that avoids that terrible scenario where you might be figuring that out during the case. So, you know, I, I think it's really helped tremendously avoid intraoperative hand wringing. The goal really is to figure out how to tie all the outcomes back to your preoperative plan because that I think ultimately will really help surgeons collectively as we put all of our experiences together in these platforms figure out, well, I thought that planning it in this way would give the best outcome, but it turns out that a couple degrees one way or the other maybe created a better outcome. And so collectively, that's going to help us improve the, uh, the surgery and the outcome for the patients. Certainly. And I think there's a realm, you know, in time, the more data that we can connect on those fronts, I also think there's tremendous potential for evaluating the cost savings from a complication standpoint and a patient outcome standpoint to embracing maybe some more of the upfront costs for imaging and more extensive preoperative planning, that there's not as much pushback on that when we're seeing the, the benefit on the backside. Absolutely. And I, I've, I've had experience with some other technology which create patient-specific blocks before you come to the operating room. And I've experienced the pushback from hospitals and, and insurance companies, but you're right. The most expensive patient to take care of is the one that has the complication, by far. And so with value-based care and you know all the things that hospital systems with CMS are moving towards, the goal is to eliminate those outliers, which is why we have such stringent criteria for operating on somebody, avoiding you know serious comorbidities and obesity and severe obesity, I should say. This technology that we talk about, the ability to get a three-dimensional CT and to eliminate the outliers is potentially going to really, in, in the future, really save the most expensive patients from coming to the hospital, or I should say coming back to the hospital. Exactly. I think you were kind of getting to this uh, a little bit when you were talking about the overall multiple of efficiencies of, of some of these systems. And you talked about the having fewer instruments and, and fewer trials when you have uh, a more specific plan. In your area, what does cases in the ASC setting look like 
is there a trend towards that? Is that picking up in your area? Kind of what are what are the thoughts on joint replacement in the ASC setting? So I'm I'm also part of this program, exactly that program at Andrews Institute, which is outpatient joints, which I've been doing here for about four or five years now. And I've learned quite a bit because my initial thoughts were really, well, if you pick the right patient, the surgery is exactly the same. So what's the big deal? And as the volume has increased, I've learned quite a bit that it's actually a lot more intricate, but there is no question that the demand for outpatient total joint surgery is increasing. And I think that the need for it has been increasing for a long time because it's significantly less expensive to the healthcare system and potentially more beneficial for those patients who can go home the same day. And maybe the biggest driver of maybe, you know, unfortunately what we're living through with this whole COVID pandemic is that it may not be safe for some patients in some areas at some times to be going to an inpatient facility to have surgery. So the ability for an ASC to provide joint replacements at an outpatient facility where there may be less potential exposure to coronavirus, you know, I think that's at least a short-term attractive option, and it's probably going to accelerate this whole thing nationally. Yeah, we've had a couple of conversations w- with folks that have brought up that aspect, and you know, unfortunately or fortunately, de- depending on how you look at it, that. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly been a catalyst of sorts to get us moving in directions that maybe we wouldn't have reached as quickly. Um, I know telemedicine has really transformed in a very short amount of time, and the conversations about transitioning to the ASC setting or outpatient joints has also come up as another area that might continue to expand, you know, maybe a little more quickly because of that. We certainly think that, as you mentioned, being able to do the in-office scan and then eliminate excessive extra stops for the patients. You know, they're going to come in, see the doctor, get their scan, and then schedule to go to the ASC for their surgery. It certainly helps on the COVID front. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the primary focus of any ASC is efficient delivery of care with few complications, hopefully as close to zero as you can get. And so the efficiency of everything and the patient experience begins in the office. And as you mentioned, the ability to get that imaging done right away and then potentially, you know, order extra things or special instrumentation. The, the intraoperative efficiencies of being able to have a plan in place as opposed to kind of figuring it out as you go. I think that With knee surgery in particular, there's going to be great benefit to doing your planning preoperatively. There are different iterations of robotic knee surgery now. Some have a little bit more preoperative planning. Others really have you doing it all intraoperatively. Mm -hmm. I think that the future is going to be more dependent on advanced imaging ahead of time so that you can execute a plan that's done before you get to the operating room, much like I described in the shoulder. Mm -hmm. What that'll do for the ASC is, again, create efficiencies, shaves a few minutes off of the operative time, especially if you can, again, minimize the number of trays you need, the number of implants that need to be there. The places that really will experience storage issues and space issues 
ASCs are going to have that challenge more so even than hospitals. So they're going to love any sort of system where you can minimize the, the need for space to store a million different implants in a million different trays. So, yeah, I mean, I think that as much as, as none of us would, would choose to be living through this, there's going to be a lot of, of positives that come out of it. And I really think that it's stepped on the gas pedal for outpatient surgeries in general, but outpatient joints specifically in orthopedics. Now, that's that's great to hear. I, I know you are a bit of a, a techie junkie that, that that's what you, you like and it serves some personal interests. What innovations on the horizon currently have your have sparked your interest anything in shoulder knee sports medicine that that you're excited about yeah i mean i'm i'm pretty involved on the shoulder side mm-hmm. um i am kind of one of the newer users on the knee side but what i see is a convergence of robotic technology and the preoperative planning side and I got into this just a little bit a minute ago, where there's you know the three basic components of a successful surgery are planning the surgery, executing the surgery, and then really defining was the outcome a good outcome. And so traditionally, the planning of the surgery was hard when you had little experience and became easier when you got more. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with your intraoperative experience. You just get better naturally as you do more of the same thing. The definition of what's good has kind of been subjective for a long time. The patients are happy because their pain is better, but that's not really very objective. Well, the things that excite me are that we're going to be able to use the technology that exists in our phones, the sort of technology that drives our cars and the same technology that recognizes your face, etc., to really collect objective outcomes on these patients. I think the preoperative planning, the 3D imaging specifically driving that is really going to allow surgeons to accelerate their knowledge base without having to get through years of their career to get there. And then the interoperative efficiencies lining up all of those with an execution that maybe is assisted or even maybe actively performed by a robot that can execute the preoperative plan. It it sounds a little bit sci-fi, but I really think that's where we're going. You know, I think that surgeons are never going to be taken over or replaced by a robot. And that's one of the things when when my fellows are going to get excited about this, uh, you know, I I always have to remind them, surgeon's always going to be the one in charge here. But we why not use the technology around us to create better outcomes for the patients? And, you know, I think merging all of these things together between preoperative planning, execution in the OR, and really objectively measuring outcomes, and then linking it back to your preoperative plan for better outcomes, that, that's going to start to really accelerate in the next five or 10 years. I, I think it's fascinating. I spent part of my background in, in public health, and so those population level health outcomes are fascinating to me. And I think that we are certainly on the verge of being able to, as you said, gathering the objective data is really, really critical in this situation. And I heard a commentary in a different webinar, but the gentleman that was speaking was talking about the fact that right now in joint replacement, we really view 
the target for improvement is small, right? So to a certain degree, the things that can make or break some outcomes are very, very small in in terms of a, a patient outcome and whether the rotation is slightly off and that patient ends up stiff. And as you said, implementing some of these technologies to uh, shorten the learning curve. I, I think there's there's really great potential there. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, as you said, you know, measuring the um, objective outcomes will really facilitate what interventions had the biggest impact. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, t- typically outcomes are subjective forms filled out by patients that their pain is better, they can function better, um, and they really love it. But we're not far away from having sensors in implants that will Bluetooth to your phone and tell your surgeon or your physical therapist exactly how many steps you took that day, exactly what the range of motion is, whether or not you're, you know, the forces that are coming across the knee are overloaded to one side or the other. And so that does two things. Obviously, that gives way more data per patient than we were ever able to catch before. But it does something else that's important. You know, traditionally in medicine, evidence-based medicine has been driven by the ivory towers of major institutions that have the manpower and the money to drive research and to create these massive pools of hundreds, if not thousands, of patients that come up with a hypothesis, and then it's proven or disproven, and that may or may not change the way people practice. What the future is going to allow are the surgeons that are kind of the onesie, twosie, private practicing people in the middle of nowhere who don't have the intricate system that would allow them, you know, research assistance and all that sort of stuff. Well, if you, you might still have somebody there who does a thousand knee replacements a year. Well, now that person's data will be able to get pooled into the ivory tower people who are running these massive studies that instead of having a few hundred patients can have tens of thousands of patients that involve many more surgeons. And analyzing that data is very quickly going to solve some questions that I think you know people are still arguing on these podiums about that have been going on for years. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point too. The other thing from the surgeon perspective, and I'd love to get your insights on this, but it's also really nice for the surgeons who don't have the staff and they don't have a research institute as part of their practice to get that data and have a way to have it be meaningful for their individual practice and get better. And um, I, I think that's certainly an area that's also very inspiring as we go towards the future, that it allows that data collection allows the individual to get better regardless of kind of the, the large institution or university setting that they may or may not be a part of. Exactly. And so, you know, I think a lot of established physicians and surgeons especially view the need to collect outcomes and to, you know, enter all this data is really a burden. And certainly the transition can be burdensome, but we need to do it. And, you know, either we're going to define what the data points are that are collected or someone else will define them for us. Ultimately, I think 
most people are going to realize that being a part of this is really going to be exciting because they'll be able to drive decisions with the data out of their own practice, even if they are a solo practitioner in the middle of nowhere who doesn't have a big support staff. Absolutely. I think um, a lot of that's been highlighted recently, too, with a lot of variables introduced, again, coming back to COVID-19, just the differences regionally in practice for different providers. And I think that's a really interesting concept as well. I know being in Florida, you know, you're in an area where there's certainly a high demand for orthopedic services. And I would say overall, maybe a little bit higher level of activity that's in demand of your, you know, from your patients. Can you speak to a little bit of that and how that's played into your practice specifically and the patient demographics and kind of what procedures you have, you know, intervened on that front? Sure. Yeah. So another way of saying what you said is that patients' expectations are higher. The age of patients who are getting joint replacements in all joints is dropping. And so, you know, 30 years ago, only quote unquote old people got joints and it was so that they didn't have pain when they walked around the neighborhood. Well, my definition of old changes every year on my birthday. (laughs) But, you know, people who are getting joints now are 60s, 50s, 40s even. And so there's two issues with that. One is we need to put these things in in such a way that they'll last a lot longer. And like it or not, the demands upon the prosthesis are going to be greater because people want to return to do much more active things. And it's not just walking around the neighborhood. You know, I've got all kinds of people in my office now who are passionate about surfing and hiking and mountain biking. And, you know, these are not your traditional AARP sorts of activities, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, we can stick our head in the sand and just say, okay, well, you know, you shouldn't lift more than 20 pounds and whatever you do, don't run. Well, I mean, I think most experienced joint surgeons will tell you the patients are going to do whatever they want to do because they feel good and they want to be active. And so we have to change with that. We have to demand of ourselves better outcomes in some way. And so all the stuff that we're talking about is going to help us figure out how do we hit that mark? How do we hit it? Not just hit it, but maybe hit it almost every single time instead of every once in a while. No, I think that's tremendous. And I, I definitely see uh, more and more often, you know, the the personalized care. And, and I know this is something you're passionate about as well, but really looking at each individual patient to find out their goals about wellness and, and what is getting better for them, because that definition can be very different from patient to patient and you know, what they're willing to do to get that, it, it can also be uh, tremendously different as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Agree. It's, and it's, you know, there's, there's something really exciting about being able to return a patient to doing whatever that activity is. And I get a lot of hugs from a lot of little old ladies who bake cookies because they're just really happy that their shoulder or their knee doesn't hurt. And those are great days. But the really awesome days are when somebody who, is, you know, like 50 years old comes in and says, I played catch with my kid last night. Like, I'm able to throw a spiral. I haven't been able to do that since college. Or, you know, I'm going mountain biking in Utah. Those are 
those are really awesome things. And those are the sorts of outcomes that I hope we see more and more of as we move into the future of all this. No, that's that's tremendous. Any advice as we kind of wrap up here to uh, any one of our listeners that might want to get in touch with you, uh, you know, younger or more experienced or any of those that are interested in the technologies that you've incorporated into your practice, any advice on getting started and then maybe how they could get in touch with you? I think getting started would be educate yourself. And as much as we have great industry partners in all of these ventures, you have to educate yourself without them holding your hand because we still need to be objective clinicians. And once you educate yourself about the technology, it will become more clear about which ones you want to be involved in and which you don't. You know, I think everybody has their varying degree of interest in in some of the things we've talked about, but it's going to become easier and easier to get involved as we move through this. So I think the more of us that are involved, just the better it's going to be all around. So I'm in Florida here in Gulf Breeze, Florida at the Anders Institute, and I have a lot of surgeons uh, who come and observe me for different things. And I work with some fantastic partners and other subspecialties from top to bottom musculoskeletally who do the same. And so, you know, the Anders Institute is easily uh, found on the web. And for me specifically, it would be O'GradyOrthopedics.com. And I'd welcome anybody who had any questions. No, that's tremendous. I uh, I can't thank you enough for your time this evening. This has been great. And I hope all of our listeners enjoyed it as well. I know that I did. Hopefully we'll, we'll be in touch and we'll hear from you soon. Great. Thanks, Jenna. Thank you for listening to this episode of Curve Beam Connect. For information on this topic or more Curve Beam content, search for Curve Beam Connect on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I've been your host today, Jenna Roller. Thanks for listening.